Good morning, everybody. It is wonderful to see you today. I wonder if you know what a roundabout is. You know, throughout Europe and in pockets of the United States, different cities and towns employ the use of traffic circles, which are also called rotaries or roundabouts. I wonder if you've ever driven in one before. Many of you have, I think. You know, I, I, used to, I have lived in multiple places, and we've lived in multiple locations that employ the use of roundabouts, and it's always really interesting to see the tourists who come to those locations and try to navigate these traffic circles. I mean, you would think by watching them that this is, a, this is just an incredibly bizarre and foreign concept, but people, this is not rocket science, It's really four simple steps. You enter the roundabout slowly. You pick one of the lanes to circle in. You use your indicator to exit the rotary, and at the appropriate time, you indeed make your exit toward your final destination. It's not that difficult, right? Wrong. Because every year we would see people that would enter the roundabout and seemingly never get out. Some of them would enter very timidly. Others would just go bombing right into the middle at 40 miles an hour and slam on the brakes. But inevitably, they get stuck in there and they just keep going around and around and around. And you can see a number of things happening while this is taking place. The first thing that you see is somebody holding their iPhone and frantically looking because because GPS maps get really confused in roundabouts. The second thing is you can see the kids in the back seat going, as they're going around again. And, and thirdly, you see a spouse that is very upset as you narrowly miss another car. And as you make your exit, you look and you see them making another pass and you think to yourself, I don't think they're ever gonna get out of that cycle. You know, in some ways, the picture of a roundabout is a good metaphor for the seasons of life that we find ourselves in. And it's certainly an accurate picture of what happens in the book of Judges. How many times have you looked at your life and you've seen the same cycle of behavior happen again and again? And again, and it leads you to the same results. This is especially true of our sinful habits and patterns. They begin to function like a cycle. And when we find ourselves in those cycles of sin, life becomes frustrating, it becomes confusing, it becomes unfulfilling. And just like the roundabout, When you're stuck in that cycle, you hear a variety of voices trying to help you to get out. But no matter how hard we try, it seems like we can be stuck in there forever. Stuck in the cycle. Never to move past it and get to our final destination. That's what happens to God's people Israel in a period of their history that we call the judges. They went through cycle after cycle of sin and behavior that's prohibited for them. And this prohibited them from experiencing God's full blessing for them. And in this book of Judges, we're starting a new series today, we will learn essentially how to break the cycle, 
but we'll learn through not normal means of positive encouragement and example. We'll actually learn through negative example. (laughs) By seeing these people, Israel, that are continuing to degrade, we will see ourselves what not to do, (laughs) and therefore, in turn, how we can follow God more faithfully. So I want to ask you to grab a Bible with you. Uh, Please open to page 200 of the Pew Bible if you have a copy of that in front of you. And you will want to open the scriptures today because we're going to look at a large chunk and we'll refer to it at multiple points. As you're turning, let me set the stage for you. God's people Israel is at the point of its history where they had been enslaved in Egypt Moses came as a prophet of God and delivered them from the Egyptians through miraculous plagues and through the parting of the Red Sea. And he brought them into the wilderness where they spent some time going through the wilderness, taking the long way toward their destination. But in the wilderness, they received the law and learned how to follow God more faithfully in light of that law. Moses brought them to the edge of the promised land where Joshua would take the helm and lead them into this promised land. And the Jordan River departed or or split so they could have their faith renewed and entered into this promised land and take hold of what God had promised to their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, by way of a covenant, the land that we call Israel today. And now in their history Joshua has died, their godly leader, and they enter into a period where the different allotments of land that each tribe is promised will be taken hold of by these tribes, or at least attempted to. This is the period of the judges. And as we read today, I want to give you a couple of encouragements. Number one, we're going to read a fairly long section of text, and as we do, there are going to be a number of names that sound like first names, but they're actually representing tribes of people. So you see the names Judah and Simeon and Dan and Joseph. We're not talking individuals, we're talking tribes. So remember that. Number two, I want to encourage you that when we read long sections of the Bible like this, I I know the the struggle. (laughs) I know the struggle for myself when I hear the scriptures read aloud. You don't know the geography very clearly. You're hearing names that are very foreign sounding. And and you get about five verses in. And mentally, you just want to say, okay, I'm going to check out for a while. And then I'm going to come back in when he's done reading. But try. This is a good exercise, that muscle that God gave you up here. This is good training for you to hear long sections of this read. And we'll take a break in the middle and summarize and uh, help recalibrate as we go forward. The book of Judges, starting in verse 1. This is what it says. It says, After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up first. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites. And likewise, I will go with you into the territory allotted to you. Simeon went up with him. Then Judah went up. Then Judah went up and the Lord gave the Canaanites 
and the Perizzites into the hands, and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. Yuck. And Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table, as I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and there he died. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country in the Negev and in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba. And they defeated Shashai and Ahaman and Talmai. From there, they went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name Debir was formerly Kiri the Cipher. And Caleb said, he who attacks Kiri the Cipher and captures it, I will give him Asha, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. And he gave him Asha, his daughter, for a wife. And she came to him, and she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey. And Caleb said to her, what do you want? She said to him, give me a blessing. Since you've set me in the land of the Negev, give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. And the descendants of the Kenite Moses, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negev near Arad, and they went and settled with the people. And Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephthah and devoted it to destruction. And so the name of the city was called Hormah. Judah also captured Gaza and its territory, Ashkelon and its territory, Ekron with its territory. And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country. But he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said, and he drove out from it the three sons of Anak, But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. And so the Jebusites have lived with the tribe of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. The house of the Lord also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Luz. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city. And they said to him, please show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city. And they struck the city with the edge of the sword. But they let the man and all of his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Luz. And that is its name to this day. Let's pause there for a second. So what is happening is that God's people, Israel, 12 tribes were each given specific allotments of land, but they had to take hold of the land that they were given. They had to take hold of it by way of battle. And so God is saying to them, it's your turn, you tribe of Judah, go up to battle and take hold of your allotment, and then it's your turn, tribe, and your turn, tribe, and so on, and so on, and so on. And so 12 tribes, not individuals, tribes, fighting against the inhabitants of this land in which they had been promised for years and years and years. 
But now what we're about to see is that the story changes. Up to this point, they've been pretty successful. But the story is going to show that they become less, less successful as the inhabitants of the land are not able to be driven out and they end up dwelling with them. So look with me at verse 27 and we'll finish this section and then we'll explain it. Verse 27 says, Manasseh, that's a tribe, did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Sheen and its villages or Tanakh and its villages or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages or the inhabitants of Eblim and its villages or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. For the Canaanites persisted and in dwelling in the land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not drive them out completely. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer, so the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahol, and so the Canaanites lived among them, but they became subject to forced labor. Asher didn't drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or Alab or uh, Ashzib or Helba or, or Afrik or Rehob. And so the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beth Anath. And so the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, lived among them. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath became subject to forced labor for them. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Haris, in Ahalan, in Shalbim. But the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labor. And the border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akbrim and Selah and upward. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim and he said, I have brought you from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their God shall be a snare to you. And as soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bochim. And they sacrificed there to the Lord. So in this larger context of salvation history, we see that the beginning of this new era for God's people is not starting out very well. God blesses his people, and his command to them was clear. For centuries, they have been waiting to take hold of this promise, the land that lies before them. And in doing so, 
God had made a promise with their forefather Abraham as part of a covenant. They would conquer the land. They would drive out the people. They would, were to follow God sincerely and not worship after other gods. God was blessing his people Israel while simultaneously judging the people of the land, the Canaanites. Now, it might sound weird to you that a holy, loving God would judge the people of the land, Canaan, by having another nation come in and take the land and essentially kill them all in battle. But these were wicked people. These were wicked, wicked people. Not only did they worship false gods, but the things that they did among themselves were things that you do not talk about at parties. And so God was doing these two things simultaneously. He was on one hand blessing his people, but in another hand judging the wickedness of the people of Canaan. And so he has this promise with them and he has near to them and they renew the covenant at the end of the book of Joshua, Joshua 24. The people respond, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods, they say. Therefore we will also serve the Lord for he is our God. One nation, 12 tribes, specific allotments of land, God's presence among them, God who always keeps his promises. He works in miraculous and incredible ways. He cares about them and he cares about you and your real, on the ground situations of life. And if you follow him faithfully, then things work out. But right away, we see in Judges chapter one, in the very beginning, that God gives them a clear command and a clear blessing. In verse two, it's time to take up an allotment of the land for Judah. And the Lord says, Judah shall go up. For behold, I've given the land into his hand. And when met with God's blessing and God's promise, this is where the problem begins. God blesses. He promises victory. Before one sword is drawn, he has said, the land is yours. Go take it. But their response is not consistent with the blessing and the promise that he gives. I wonder how many times in life you've seen God work in incredible ways. You've experienced a nearness to him that you long to have again. Maybe you've had a specific need and you've prayed diligently to him, God, please help me in this spiritual victory. Please help me with this material reality. Please help me with this physical difficulty. And God has answered your prayer. (laughs) He's been generous and kind to you. And you know a unique sense of nearness to him that maybe you didn't know before. But then... You look up four or five or six days later and you find yourself falling back into the same sinful habits and patterns that you had before. You're entering the cycle again. Your response does not match the blessing that he's given. And that's what's happening here in Israel. Their response is not consistent with the blessing. And so we can describe their response in this way. We can describe it as partial obedience and partial faith. 
And what you see in the rest of chapter one is really four examples of partial obedience and partial faith. And they get worse in their nature. So the first one seems like it's not that big of a deal and the consequences aren't that bad. But by the time we get to the fourth example, it's a really big deal and the consequences are catastrophic. And so that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at four examples. And, And by way of introduction to the whole book of Judges, this helps us to answer the simple question, how do we enter the cycle of sin? That's so hard to get out of. We look at four levels of failure by Israel. The first example is found right away at the beginning of the book in verse three. Judah, the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Simeon make a battle pact together and this is a sign of their lack of faith. God tells them very clearly, Judah, go up and take hold of the land. The battle's already won. And so immediately Judah turns around and says, hey Simeon, do you wanna go with me? But God didn't say Judah and Simeon go up. He said, Judah, you go up. Hey, Simeon, do you want to come with me? Judah was the largest tribe. And physically speaking, they should have been easily able to overtake their enemies. But beyond that reality, God had said it was just them that were supposed to go up. I mean, after all, if he is for them, how can anybody stand against them? And they've seen this before. They know of this reality. It has not that far in the distant past. I mean, it was their fathers and their forefathers who delivered from Egypt, who saw the plagues. It was their fathers and their forefathers who crossed through as the Red Sea was parted. It was their fathers and their forefathers who saw God manifested as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. It was their fathers and their grandfathers who had seen Moses come down the mountain with bright face as he reflected the glory of the Lord. It was their fathers and their forefathers who had crossed the Jordan River coming into the land, who saw the walls of Jericho fall, who saw the sun stand still in the sky as the power of God was made manifest in battle. And so when God says to these people of all people, behold, I have given the land into your hand, this means something to them. And yet, despite hearing and seeing and knowing about the greatness of God, they take his command and instead they form a battle pact with their brother tribe. Why would they do this? Well, self-determination, self-reliance that is rooted in human perspective. That's why they would do it. They saw an opportunity to leverage their own strength and what they saw did not match reality and so they decided that's what they were gonna do. And this leads to an important question for all of us about how we're going to live our life, you see. Are you going to live your life Or do you live your life in a manner that fully trusts your own perception of reality? Or are you going to live your life as a life of faith, obedience, 
and trust that God has a greater perception of reality than you do. Whose perception is greater? Yours or God's? It's really that simple. If the answer is number one, then you will always do what is right in your own eyes. And you'll mix some God stuff in along the way. But if the answer is number two, then you will pursue doing what is right in God's eyes, even if your perception of reality does not match the results that you think you're going to get, but you stay faithful to him along the way. You know, there are a lot of things that skew human perception. Unfortunately, our human perception doesn't always give us accurate readings. It's like a thermometer that's placed in urban areas. If you live in the middle of an urban area and you put a thermometer on the front of your house and you are living near an expressway or a blacktop parking lot or right next to another building even, that thermometer will give you readings that are five to 10 degrees higher than the actual temperature. Concrete, blacktop, bricks, they all absorb heat and they reflect heat, right? And you need, if you're in those situations, to get a correct temperature reading that the National Weather Service has strict guidelines for ideal thermometer exposure. (laughs) I know you've probably never thought about that in your entire life. They say that a thermometer or its sensor should be located over grass in a white ventilated shelter four to six feet above the ground, at least 100 feet away from all paved surfaces and at least 500 feet from any building. Now, unless you meet those guidelines, you can't trust your thermometer. And in the same way, under certain conditions of this life, You can't trust your perception to give accurate readings of God's perfect will. This is the crossroads of a life of faith in following God with regard to his will. And that's why he outlines it for us in the Bible. Now, for Judah, the consequences are really limited in the short term. Right? They win the battle, they get their allotment of land, and there's nothing much to be said about it beyond the fact that they're now creeping toward a pattern in their tribal life, a pattern of perception that's mixed with their perception and some God stuff mixed in along the way. We see in example number two, this gets a little bit worse. Look with me at verse 22. We see that the house of Joseph goes up against Bethel to take their allotment of land. And what happens? Well, as the, as the warriors are entering the city, they say a guy who's coming out of the city. And, and they say, hey, we need a little local knowledge here. Why don't you show us the way in? And in exchange, we will let you and your family go. That sounds like a pretty fair trade, right? But what's the problem? God told them to destroy the inhabitants of the land, and not to make any covenants with the people of the land. And they've just made a covenant with him. 
Why would they do that? Well, I think it's the same reason why we do things like that, and that is fear of the unknown often results in making moral compromises so that we can know what's happening next. But here's an important principle to remember. The unknown future with God is always better than the known future without God. Think about that for a minute. The unknown future with God, meaning you follow him faithfully, you try to be obedient, you trust him, you engage with how he's asking you to live. The unknown future with God is always better than the known future without him. And the consequences in this moment for Joseph are are minimal. But then again, when you start to rationalize small changes in God's command and mix it with some of your own desires, this is an entryway into the cycle or the roundabout of sin. The story from there takes a dramatic shift, and that's where we paused in verse 27, because now we see other tribes who are failing to drive out the inhabitants of the land. The first couple did fine. (laughs) Judah, Simeon, Joseph, they made it. But now we see this whole list of other tribes that can't drive them out any longer, and they actually end up cohabitating with them in the land. And so you see, this equates to a lack of faith. The cycle of sin is getting more progressed. The decisions of the Israelites are degrading, And verse 127, Manasseh didn't drive them out. They put them into forced labor. Verse 29, Ephraim didn't drive them out. They lived among them. Verse 30, Zebulun didn't drive them out. They lived among them and they put them into forced labor. Verse 31, Asher didn't drive them out. They lived among them. Verse 33, Naphtali didn't drive them out. They lived among them. And that all results in the worst possible scenario of verse 34. Not only did the tribe of Dan not drive them out, but the tribe of Dan themselves were driven out. And they failed to take hold of the land that God had promised because of their lack of faith. And so here's the point. (laughs) We see a living example of what starts with the slightest bit of disobedience with Judah not closely following God's commands. And it turns into another step of rebellion with Joseph mixing God's commands and now ends up in wide-scale unfaithfulness that results in disaster. Partial obedience constitutes disobedience to God, and that leads to disaster. Partial obedience constitutes disobedience to God, and that leads to disaster. We have three little people in my house right now who are learning these lessons daily. And particularly the two-year-old and the three-year-old are learning two things multiple times a day. Delayed obedience, that's disobedience, and partial obedience is disobedience. But it's interesting, isn't it, how we teach these things to our kids, and it's draining, and yet as adults, when it comes to God, we still are learning the same lessons again and again and again. 
partial obedience is disobedience. And that leads to disaster. And so how does God respond? Well, God responds in treating partial faith and partial obedience like he would treat no faith and no obedience. And he reminds them of this in chapter two, verse two. He reminds them of the covenant in which they were to drive out the inhabitants of the land and not make any covenants with them and that they were to break down the altars to foreign gods within the land and not allow them to stand. The failure to break down the altars is particularly offensive to God. Guys, this is like if you get married and you buy your first house and you have your lovely new wife and you're setting up home and you're making it your own and then she reaches into that special box and she takes out a picture, a framed picture of her high school boyfriend, Matt, and hangs him on the wall as a constant reminder of affections that are still brewing for another, a constant reminder and a continual temptation to go back to the one who could offer her much, much less than you are already offering her. When the Israelites didn't drive out the people, when they left the altars to foreign gods up for their worship, God's response is one to remind them, but number two, he says to them in verse two, you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? And no answer comes forth. I mean, the question is loaded heavy, it's severe. This is the same question that God asked to another couple of people who he had given everything to, who he had let taste paradise. Their names were Adam and Eve. And as God walked through the garden and he remembered how they walked together and how they had communed together and how they had been given everything that they needed and even more everything that they wanted. But they still took the fruit of the forbidden tree and God came to them and he says, what have you done? I've given you everything. No answer can begin to offer the explanation or excuse. This is the picture of our sin when we start to see God rightly. When we hear his voice, when we know his nearness, and when we see ourselves in right proximity to him and our sin for what it really is. No answer. No excuse can justify it. And we do that one decision at a time, 
one step at a time. And that's how we enter into this cycle. You know, a couple years ago, there was a man named Stuart Moffat who awoke one Saturday morning before Easter, and he loaded up his wife and his three kids in the family car, and they headed to the annual Easter egg hunt in the British town of Holford, which is in Somerset. And about 25 children participated in the Easter egg hunt that day in the field beside a busy road, and as the hunt was drawing to an end, the parents began to count the eggs to make sure that they had got them all. And Stuart looked up, and he noticed... A three-year-old boy that was on the edge of the field near the road. And he apparently found an egg. And not recalling having placed an egg that near to the road, he went to investigate. And as he got closer, he was impressed to see that the boy was not only playing with the egg, but he was actually standing on the egg. And it didn't crack. And so he walked closer, and he noticed that the egg was oddly shaped and textured, And it wasn't until he knelt beside the little boy, still standing on top of the egg, that Stuart realized this was not an egg at all. It was a hand grenade. In fact, it was a live, fully functioning World War II hand grenade. Stuart picked up the boy. They backed away quickly. The bomb squad was called, and they destroyed the grenade in a controlled explosion. But you think about the story, I mean, it's hard to fault the child. After all, it looked like an Easter egg, and Easter eggs were what he was looking for. (laughs) But sometimes, you get more than you bargained for. What you see looks like what you want. It feels like what you want. But if it is not in line with how God would call you to live. It's just simply relying on your own perception. Then the results can be explosive. Does God really know what is best for you? Lack of following God's commands indicates a lack of belief, a lack of trust, a lack of faith in him. And partial obedience constitutes disobedience. And that leads to disaster. How many times have you found yourself in a cycle of sin? You look at your life and you say, I'm going through the same cycle of behavior again and again and again, and it's leading to the exact same results. Relational sins, sexual sins, substance abuse, gossip, self-reliance, laziness, whatever it is for you. You can avoid the rotary, the roundabout, altogether. You can avoid the roundabout by continuing to follow God fully and completely and casting aside the temptation to taking him halfway. And this all begins with the gospel. This all begins through a relationship with Jesus Christ that you lower your pride. You say, my self-perception and self-reliance is not enough. 
I'm gonna follow faithfully and fully, and so God, please forgive me of my sin. I trust you to forgive me of my sin. And when you trust him to forgive you of your sin, then you get into this relationship with Jesus, you confess to him, you seek forgiveness from him, and then you say, I'm not only gonna trust you with my sin, I'm gonna trust you with my life, fully with my life, as you pursue following him faithfully. You begin to cast aside the notions that you can secure your future through compromise or that you can have a good mix of self-reliance and God-reliance. Partial obedience is disobedience. Partial faith is no faith. And God says, I want all of you. So in response to him and to his word, may we continue to live in complete surrender and faith. Let's pray together and confess and ask for help. Father, we thank you that a story that is seemingly abstract from hundreds of years ago with a nation of people in a far off land has so many practical applications for us today. God, we do not want to be people who are partially faithful or have partial faith. We do not want to be people who are stuck in cycles of behavior, of sin, because we know that they ultimately lead us back to the same unfulfilling place. And so we pray for your help. We thank you for the work of Christ on the cross who breaks the slavery to sin that we have but we know that we're also called to be faithful to you following the forgiveness that he offers. And so we ask God that you would help us in this. Help us not to be people of self-reliance. Help us not to be people of moral compromise. Help us not to be people who take things casually when it comes to you. Give us resolve. Give us vigor. Give us diligence, we pray. In the name of our mighty Savior, amen.